Hey all you cats and kittens out there in Radio Land. Um, it's going to become really obvious here in a moment based on context, but this is another episode much like the mini that we released with David earlier this week that is a little bit old. It is, in my opinion, one of the best episodes we've ever done. Uh, David is incredibly open about his experiences and... It's just, just great. But, in addition to that, it's pretty old. So, just keep that in mind when we're talking about some of the more current events that are not quite so current anymore. Anyway, I'll let you get to it. It's kind of long, but I swear it's totally worth it. And whatever you do, listen until the end. I repeat, listen until the end. And welcome to Be Dead Source, your home for every flavor of Kool-Aid. My name's Nathan, your Wacoist host. <laughs> My name is Andy, your most Jonestown host. Oh, no. I'm Pat, your apocalyptic host, the end times are nigh. And we have a special guest uh, today. I am David, your easternmost host. <laughs> that Welcome is very, David. very true. Wait, did I take I yours, David? Literally. Did I take yours? No, no, no. I was always good because, like, okay, the good. easternmost host, like the host with the most east. I, I don't like know. It. No, no, that's right. It's <laughs> vaguely corny, but I also am in the east. Like, you know, it's uh, almost tomorrow here, my time. You so. you said, oh, no, and I, I thought maybe I had stolen yours by mistake. No, just because <laughs> Jonestown, man, that's, like, dark. Well, we already made the Kool-Aid. We, we already broke down. Yeah, ours. that's, well, that's true. We, but, we really appreciate yeah. you coming on, David. So, oh, thank you. there are uh, some credentials that you have. Mm. Okay, yep. Uh, just to run through them really quick, um, I have a master's degree in, it's under the umbrella of linguistics in general. Technically, it's a, a teaching English uh, to speakers of other languages degree, but my master's degree involved the study of things like pedagogy, sociolinguistics, psycholinguistics. My dissertation was on uh, cultural identity and personality as it relates to language acquisition and use. I received a, a mark of distinction from an Ivy League British university, the, the University of Birmingham. So that's the resume bits. And I am an ex-cult member as well. Wow. <laughs> we get it. You're smart. Okay. Fine. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the last part is, I mean, I just said all that other stuff to kind of take the bite I, well, out of the we're, shame we're that gonna comes get into from that, having to say the last But every bit. time we have a guest on, these two try and, like, plow right through the how is your week been part. And I'm not going to let them do it this time. So <laughs> here's here's the deal. Uh you can uh, choose any okay. time over the course of your life uh, that you'd like to to fill in to tell us about your week because well, he you has haven't been, been with a, us. He's been a, a he featured a, he, guest on a on a bonus episode. Yes, he has been on a bonus episode, but you did not do a "How Is Your Week" on that bonus episode. Yeah, Bazinga! How's your week episode? That's true. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. Anyway, I, uh, I've been having a very coronavirus week. I mowed my lawn. My, uh, 
My lawnmower broke last week, and so we're ordering a part to fix it. But I have an older, way shittier lawnmower that I used. So it, t- it takes about twice as long for me to mow my lawn. But it does make me feel like I'm adulting pretty hard every time I mow my lawn. So that's been good. I don't know. I did a lot of cooking. I made some potato pancakes and bacon last night. They were really good. I feel like my Jewish neighbors wouldn't approve, though. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not. that's like super, like, flipping the bird to kosher. <laughs> dude, dude, no Jews keep kosher except for the ones that, like... Well, the ones that live around... Listen, we, yeah. David, we all still live in Cleveland Heights. We know... Yeah. We're like this is yeah Cleveland University <laughs> Heights is South uh, Euclid Lyndhurst okay. uh, like it's this is a very Jewish area <laughs> I know I know well I'm just saying they're they so they so well that's, that's they're all so I'm good together so <laughs> for for a quick reference um, <laughs> I can totally imagine. I have known David pretty much my entire life since before I before even elementary school. Um, and so I also know his parents very well. And yeah, uh, I can, I can say they're not really like the kosher type. Oh, but we do have all the orthodox ones. That, <laughs> I mean, I believed him, but I appreciate your backup. <laughs> we, we have the ones that, uh, you know, walk to temple. Yeah, yeah and, that's true. Uh, Those like, are there. shave their facial hair. And I have, I have a lot of respect for that tradition. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think if we what? examine they're, they're a lot of, of modern religions, um, we're going to find a lot of similarities <laughs> to they, cults they, or, oh. or, at least in their origins. Well, okay. So origins, origins is where I would disagree with that. Although I just, I, I would probably agree with maybe uh, part of the first part of your statement. But the reason I say that about the the Orthodox Jews is because of how exclusionary they are, and the way that if, like, if you're a former Orthodox Jew, you're very much often shunned by the community, um, and that kind of exclusionary. Um, attitude is is definitely one of the major markers so, of a cult. <clears throat> Similarly, um, y'all should talk about your week before you try and jump into the episode. Uh, I I keep trying to skip it. So so my yeah. week, my week's been good. It's been uh, right. relatively uneventful. I'm I'm very worried about. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in Hong Kong right now. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. are familiar. Um, in this last week, they started kicking. Uh, democratically elected <sighs> officials who are anti-Beijing, um, kicking them out of council chambers in the, uh, like, local Hong Kong government and uh, taking a vote after all of the anti-Beijing people had been kicked out of council chamber. Um, they've been using the coronavirus as uh, an excuse to do a lot more cracking down on uh, protesters and dissenters. And there's this idea of, like, a threat to freedom anywhere is a threat to freedom everywhere. Um, I kind of believe that that's true. So um, the things that are going on in China are kind of worrisome right now. And... uh, yeah, I mean, um, bums me out. I think it's, it's pretty crazy what, what the Chinese government is trying to kind of pull right now. And especially considering all eyes are on them because they are the origin of the coronavirus. Like, yeah, there's this global pandemic going on, 
but it's actually drawing more attention to you. Why are you doing this super anti-democratic kind of nonsense right now? Um, well, they're trying to change I mean, that the, narrative too. Um, so well, apparently yeah, the virus came from the United States or from Russia or from several other places that are not China. And that's the narrative that they're kind of trying to push. The, I, I would say the answer to your question, Andy, um, as to why is because <laughs> they can. Um, yeah. <laughs> because the, like, the, the, the influence and power and dominance that China has over here in Asia is, um, it's, it's something that is difficult to probably communicate to, um, people living in North, North and South America. It's probably, probably people in, in Europe feel it a little bit more. Um, but like living in South Korea, like, like it's just kind of, you either accept that China does that shit or you lose your economy. Um, so what are we going to do? Um, and- yeah, I mean, it was a rhetorical question. Oh, okay, okay. I thought it was... <laughs> but, okay. I mean, I certainly don't understand the the nuances of Asian um, international politics uh, being way over here in Ohio. But um, but but I, I do... I have been keeping up on this issue, so I, I do have some grasp of, like, what roughly is going on. Probably... I, you're probably your average American doesn't even know that something's going on in Hong Kong or really? they know that like there's unrest. Okay. I think at best most they, they may might know that there's unrest. Right. But you have to, I don't think most Americans understand the nature of the two, two nations, one government, like, or whatever it's called in the first place. I, I barely understand you it. You mean the, the, the one China, the one based, China policy? Yeah. yeah. Well, specifically the Hong Kong agreement, uh, when the British passed, uh, Hong Kong back ah, to, yes. uh, communist China, yeah. they, they implemented a, what is it? Two, two oh, countries, oh, okay. one system. You're referring to the, on the yeah, Hong Kong side. It, the one China like policy is China's view, but the two, okay. Right. Two government, one nation is Hong Kong's view. So where, where Hong Kong basically considers itself a, a, a almost independent, but still nation. like ethnically Chinese or something. Uh, yeah. So there was an agreement. Um, so Britain wanted to keep Hong Kong, um, you know, economically free, and um, China agreed that they would do that for fifty years. That they would be able to control their own economy and their own government. Um, this was in I, the late nineties. Yeah, and uh, so that would have expired in, uh, I think, uh, the 2040s, 2047, maybe? That sounds right to me. Basically like, ah, take backs. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Britain now has no leverage yeah. to enforce that. Like, what right. would they and do? Which goes so. back to what I said. Why? Because they can. Yeah. Right. And exactly. you have to understand with America, our news is so insular here. I'm not saying you can't access news from other places. But in a general, normal, national news broadcast, if you have, let's say, 22 minutes mm. of news in a half-hour period, maybe 90 seconds of that is the you world. Know, that's uh, it, Just to reverse that, that's one of the things that I think has sort of shocked me the most since moving out of America 10 years ago, is that uh, the rest of the world devotes nearly as much time to American news as America does. Like... We, yes, really? I mean, not quite as much, but, um, 
the the world is much more aware of and interested in what's going on in America than America tends to be in what's going on in the rest of the world. Yeah, America. The second so for, part of that is certainly yeah, yeah. A, a, a cultural staple. Uh, we we are the rest of the world. What are you talking <laughs> about? They're just an yeah. extension of us. <laughs> so, for example, I, I've seen much more um, coverage on Hong Kong through social media than I have through traditional media. But, uh, yeah. again, like I, that's because... I don't really spend any time watching, uh, like, Channel 5 news or anything like that. Honestly. I don't really... Honestly, you probably get it more than Korean news gives it to us. I mostly know what's going on in Hong Kong because of the expat community. Because I have friends who I taught Mm. with here in Korea that are now teaching in Hong Kong. um, And I hear directly from them. The, The Korean news doesn't spend much time on Hong Kong either. Wow. The only... The only real coverage of that situation that I've had much access to, or at least I shouldn't say had access to, I should say that I have accessed, um, is through NPR, which I think, you know, they kind of have an obligation to, to handle world news on, on some level. And The Economist, which is an, a British publication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, The Guardian and, is excellent for that stuff, too. The Guardian, okay, I'll check that out because I, I'd be interested in a few more kind of perspectives on it. Is, um, yeah. I'm used to, you know, with American news, I'm used to being able to go to five, six, seven news sources to get a kind of nice multifaceted view of something <laughs> and, and form my own thoughts. But it's hard with only two real sources. Yeah. So Andy and David, how was how was your guys' week? Um, you want to go first, man? I got nothing. All right. It's been a boring um, week. All right. So my week started decently enough. So I went and visited my uh, friend who I used to live with in America. I don't think you probably met him, Andy. I only lived with him for about two years, and I don't think we hung out much those two years. But he lived in China for a while, and now he's teaching in Korea. Went down mm-hmm. to his area, which I haven't been to in a, a long time because it's outside of Seoul. And I found out it was an awesome area. Like, I thought everywhere outside of Seoul and Busan was terrible, but apparently there's this little, there's this, he lives in a city called Bundang, which is 90% really boring and drab, but there's apparently this one little area called Jungjung, which is uh, really cool and interesting and fun, and I went, and uh, I'm a a tobacco pipe smoker, Um, that's that's what this is, by the way, Um, for the viewers. For all the listeners. For all the listeners, I am, I am puffing on a pipe. It is, it is a tobacco pipe. I went and I found this lovely. It's a very handsome pipe. Thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of it. I found this lovely pipe tobacco called, um, Rattay's Buckingham, um, hickory nut vanilla cinnamon. It's a blend of, uh, Cavendish and Virginia's. And it is just, I, you know, when I, the reason I, I moved to pipe from cigarettes, is because pipe doesn't really make me want to inhale. I just kind of want to puff it and just get the smell around me. And it's almost like mm-hmm. it's almost like a little campfire in my hand, and it makes incense in the room. Like, I would never smoke a cigarette in my room. I would come back into my room later and be like, Ugh, God, what the hell is this? But um, whenever I come home and there's this scent of pipe tobacco in my room, I'm like, ah, ah, my room smells pretty good, actually. Um, <laughs> For our younger listeners... Uh, smoking a pipe is kind of like vaping, but for hipsters. 
<laughs> yes. I thought vaping was for hipsters. Um, aside from that. No, not anymore. It's super mainstream now. It's just for everybody. Um, <clears throat> hipsters don't do it anymore because everybody else does it. Um, aside from <laughs> that, the rest weird. of my week, I, I went to, I've been, I've been struggling a little bit. I've, I've had, I've had pretty severe, um, depression over the past two years since my divorce. Um, and I, in April, I decided to go off of my antidepressants, but that didn't work out too well. And so this week I went back to my psychiatrist and I've started a new SSRI. Hi, Paul. And... It's going okay so far. I'm sorry to hear about your uh, your divorce and your depression. That's uh, yeah. That's a tough spot. It's Thanks been for sharing. Yeah, no, no worries. It's it's been a tough two years. Um, I winter was the worst. I self destructed a lot during February and January, especially. I thought when spring came, I started to really feel better, and that's why I decided to go off the SSRI. But I kind of relapsed a little bit, so maybe it was a little bit too soon of a decision but i i do i do hope to be off of the ssri before too long because i do i do agree with you that i it's not a good thing to really be on i don't i don't want to live the rest of my life on an ssri right Mm -hmm. uh for the listeners uh if you're a new listener go back to episode 18 where we talk more about ssris Aka well, episode four twenty. I want to clarify because yeah, I David, had a really hardline stance that was that um, you know SSRIs are not <laughs> as harmless as um, what they've been communicated to be. I want to clarify that um, you know I do think that they can be helpful to a certain uh, portion of the population. For most drugs, you would want that to be a, a wider swath of the population. Agreed. Um, I, I think it's pretty Agreed. narrow. Um, the amount of people that they help, but I don't want to diminish that they do help certain people and that for their lives are made better by SSRIs. I don't have a problem with that until we have something better. I did the longest, (laughs) I did the longest fact check of our show's history on SSRIs. And (laughs) it took me like, even with uh, some sources that Pat had sent me, it took me probably two hours and like, six or eight different sources to, to be able to find all Jeez. the different information Sorry. that we need and everything. Gave you a bunch no, of extra no, no. work. I was going to say you had a really long one in healthcare. Yep. That was a big uh, and one. And <clears throat> I had to do like an hour worth of research earlier in the episode about God pit bulls because we decided- <laughs> I loved that fact check, by the way. That was my favorite fact check that you've ever done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, but today so. we're here to talk uh, specifically about cults. Yeah. So what what is a cult? What's the definition? Because there you have religions, mm. and if there if there's any distinction to be made, cults have maybe like a narrower definition, and it's it's something where like a lot of control over your life is exerted, and uh, often it's revolved around one like charismatic figure. Um, d- d- does anyone have something that like you know defines what? Yes, cult I do. Is? Um, Alright, so this is based on the paper called Cult Formation, 1981, uh, by Robert J. Lifton. And he would say that the three defining aspects of a cult are, number one, a charismatic leader, number two, some kind of thought reform, 
and number three, some form of exploitation of the members. He would say that a cult is a combination of all of those three. I would, um, based on my own own sociological background and experience in cults, say that it's a progressive list. That it is a charismatic leader that is required for thought reform to take place. And that thought reform is required for exploitation to be successful. But I think it's a good list. And I think of all, there's a lot out there. So if you go and you start Google scholaring cult stuff, you're going to drown in literature. Especially you're going to find a lot of sort of, uh, I don't know what the proper term for that kind of survey is, but, but a, a, a point based survey where you go down a checklist and like every answer is worth so many points. And if they add up to a certain threshold, then it's defined as a cult. And I kind of, like, those those lists can be useful and helpful to a degree, but I, I think they're almost myopic. And I, of the literature that I've read on cults, this this list of three characteristics by Lift, Lifton is what I would present as the best generalization of cults. And I want to add to that a specific reason, because... In popular media about cults, in most of the YouTube videos you will watch about cults, in most of the Vox articles you will read about cults, they tend to hyper-focus on the most destructive cults, um, the, the Jonestown types, the, the ones where people, you know, die when the asteroid or whatever comet thing comes, and I would suggest, and this is my own terminology, I would suggest that cults fall on a spectrum of benevolent cults to malevolent cults. And don't, I don't, I don't want to mince words here. A benevolent cult can still absolutely be, uh, very psychologically and emotionally damaging to its participants, but there is a side of the spectrum of cults where the leader themselves is delusional. They believe in their own cause somehow to some degree versus a cult that the leader is knowingly manipulating people for for a, a gain. And I would say that both of them are cults, but most of the media um, discussion of cults focuses, hyper-focuses on the the Jonestowns and the Mansons and that type. Oh, of thing. I'm sorry. Could could you define myopic for for the the stupid people, <laughs> including me? <laughs> no, like, not us. The the stupid people out there. Um, <laughs> uh, miss, yeah. <laughs> um, missing the forest for the trees. Kinda, okay. Yeah. Short sighted. Mm, uh, nearsighted. Uh, just uh, overly zoomed in. Like. Okay. Mm. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Um, okay. Is, is there a distinction that's to be drawn between, um, like, you know, modern religions and cults? Would we say that, like, um, there's a joke, it, a, a religion is a cult given enough time? Uh, oh, do you want my answer to that, or? Or, or like... I'll take, I'll take anybody's answer to that. Yeah, similarly, similar joke is, uh, that the only difference between a cult and a religion is the size of its yeah, membership. Yeah, no, I completely, completely right, disagree with both of those. Well, they're jokes. Um, they're yeah, not no, I get intended, that, but, to, but, yeah. No, I think that there's, I think there's this problematic view that a cult is in any way based on religion. 
that I, I don't think that there's a connection between cult and religion. A, a cult can be completely um, secular, and n- no, no, not not every religion either started as or dis- dis- or presents the um, qualities of a cult. A, a religion is based on some kind of belief, um, and we can critique those beliefs on various bases of of rationality for their, you know, logical consistency, um, and that's fine. But, no, I would say that most religions don't ultimately uh, end in the exploitation of members, and I would say that many, many groups that are non-religious do. Hmm. So two two totally different beasts we're I talking about. I would say about. so. Um. I mean, a, a, re- a, a cult can be religious, to be clear, so I think um, to to blow off that that the relationship between re- religions and cults I think is is maybe a little naive though there are there's a lot of kind of crossover or um, I mean we could we could break down your three criteria and apply them to Christianity a, a charismatic leader being Jesus a uh a, what was the second the the thought mind reform. thought the thought, thought, thought process thought reform well that is pretty self-evident that's there's a lot of that in there you know these behaviors are not okay these behaviors are etc cetera, etc cetera. um and then exploitation arguably perhaps um unintentional for the sake of you know be- giving the benefit of the doubt but um, I would say that millions and billions have been exploited by Christianity uh, throughout history. Well, so there's tithing. I I would say that that fits the those criteria. Well, two things to that. First of all, I want to clarify: thought reform is not the same as having a philosophy, because we can't just say that because because a worldview says this is good, this is bad, means it's thought reform. Otherwise, then we're gonna call uh, Kant and Nietzsche and Socrates and Plato cult leaders. Um, not well, Socrates was killed for basically being a cult yeah, leader. Yeah, uh, the, the 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 recorded history of Socrates is, I believe, not super clear. All right. Plato says Socrates was killed for basically essentially corrupting the youth. Was he? Uh, well, that's what he was accused of, and you know what? With, can that's we not the, the name they gave the crime? Anyway, <laughs> y'all are unless, nerds again. Unless nerds, all you're yeah. going. <laughs> Thank you. Um, unless you're literally going to say that <laughs> right. every person with a philosophical perspective is guilty of thought reform, then I don't think that that holds water. Thought reform is a specific process, and. Um, I would say it is a process that is the result of... Actually, I would not say. This one comes from Daniel Shaw. Um, it is a process that results from the effect of traumatic narcissism. That a cult leader is a traumatic narcissist. Now, here's a quote on that. Um, by the way, um, some of these quotes uh, come from a very interesting Wisecrack video, which I will give you... The link to to put down in the thingamabob doobly-doo um, doobly-doo yeah. whatever we call it um, I this is not I want to be clear I have been reading and, and researching um, at least at least not necessarily professionally but by my own interest cults for for several years but this video that I'll give you the link to is I think the best 
like, layman's presentation of the overview of a cult. Awesome. So, when I had 30 minutes to take some quick notes for this episode, I just used that video to, to jot down. I've read, I've read most of these papers that I'm referring you to. Um, and the wisecrack the stuff are always great. Yeah, r- wisecrack is good. So, anyway, traumatic narcissism. The objectification of one person in a relationship as the needs of enforcing the dominance of the subjectivity of the other. Now, to sort of translate that into less academic speak, what it means is that a traumatic narcissist demands that you surrender the right to have your own um, perspective. You, you surrender your right to have your own interpretation. So one of the things I would counter to you, Andy, about like Christianity is the very evidence that Christianity itself isn't a cult as a whole is the spectrum of Christianity. There's, there was Catholicism and then there was Lutherism and there's baptism and there's fifth day Adventism so- and, and there's an ability within Christianity as a whole for people to disagree and to present their own interpretation of the Gospels. Now, I'm not saying that that there are not Christian cults. There are. But Christianity sure. is not a cult because it does not demand Just... the giving up of one's ability to philosophize. Christianity, as a big umbrella term itself is not a cult it's more of a collection of cults. well okay well you didn't you go to the the uh one of that one, um i would say there are good christian religions um uh episcopalianism was pretty decent in my view the uni- the one you went to man the universalism yeah. unitarian yeah, universalist you- is not really is not Christian. Andy and I are both only, members of only uh, historical. I, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm still a Unitarian Universalist. I'm not. And, and then there are the millions of people that are just sort of vaguely Christian and don't belong to a church that are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that Jesus dude, he was kind of cool. He said some good shit. I guess I kind of believe in that more or less. Right. Like I think most people who go to like a non-denominational, yeah. like christian christian church still consider themselves to be christian right so i have i have a story about early christianity so in early christianity um the idea was that you would give up all of your worldly possessions and you would donate them to the church and then you would come and just live in and among the the church people and um you know you would get a reward in heaven for g- this giving up of your material possessions so there there's a very interesting story about Ananias and Sapphira so this was to, if i may ask clarification is this story a biblical story or is it a historical story this is a biblical story okay um so Ananias and Sapphira were this married couple and um, they owned some land, so they sold off the land, and um, what everybody was doing was they were selling their land and their possessions and laying the entirety of the amount at the apostles' feet. Um, and Ananias and Sapphira decided that they would, they would do this, but they wanted credit for giving everything, um, but they wanted to keep 
some of it for themselves, you know, in case this whole thing didn't pan out or for whatever reason, they wanted to keep some of their wealth. So they, they sold their land and then um, Ananias shows up and uh, lays a portion of the money at the apostles' feet. And um, the apostles are like, well, did it sell for uh, this amount that you're, you're telling us? And he's like, yes, it sold for that amount. And Ananias was struck dead on the spot that, that presumably God or whatever spirit just struck him dead. And then uh, Sapphira showed up later and said, was this the amount that your land sold for? Which was, you know, the lie. And she's like, yes, that's the amount that it sold for. And she also was struck dead and then carried out of the building. So <laughs> is this a New Testament story or an Old Testament? That's got to be this Old a, Testament. This is a new. Is it? No, this is New Testament story. Damn. Yeah. Wow. That's that's very Old Testament esque. God was like right. God seemed always like way meaner in Old Testament than New Testament, which is why. Sure yeah. The Jew, the Hebrew God was a <laughs> I, dick. Yeah, not a big fan of him. Christian God is also a dick, but, like, he's nice about <laughs> so, it. So what is like, the point of this the, story? So the point of this story is that, um, you know, not necessarily that you... I guess one interpretation would be that you you have to sell everything and come and live with the church, but I think that's probably the wrong interpretation. I think the, the more important interpretation is that you can't lie and say that this is the amount that it sold for when you had actually sold it for more and you're keeping... Some of okay. it for yourself that you're that you're lying to the Holy Spirit because in theory, if, um, okay. Yeah. But the Don't. the point of that story, uh, I mean, that is a fearsome story. Like, what is what is that story going to do to your believers? Mm. That always struck me as like not my favorite early Christian story. <laughs> mm. I I totally one hundred percent agree with that being kind of a messed up story. I would say, though, and this is why I asked clarification about whether it was a biblical story or a historical story, is because when we talk about biblical stories, um, a lot of the times what they really are is morality tales. Um, it, they're Aesop's fables. They're, they're, so just as you said... Parables. It, yeah, just as you said is that the point of the story is, like, a be an honest person. Like, the story isn't about it's no, we're not talking like uh, assuming that we all share um a moderate amount of uh, agnostic skepticism um they're not about literal historical people as far as we know um they are they are stories represented to portray a message and you articulated that message which is don't be a liar if you want to get into the topic of the early church and the giving of the money and the the sacrificing of the wealth, that does raise the potential for exploitation. But I want to bring into that topic, and I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way, I, but I want to bring into that topic one other thing that's important to consider in cults, is it's the question of um, who is benefiting from the sacrifice. Because we can't say that any sacrifice is itself exploitation. We we can't say that when Martin Luther King um marched for the civil rights movement and people got beat up and and shot with water hoses that he was a cult leader asking for exploitation because people sacrificed along with him. 
the question when we discuss the topic of exploitation is who, or, or sacrifice, is who is the sacrifice for? Is it for the cult leader? Is it, or is it for a greater purpose? Is mm-hmm. it for something, um, that is, is beneficial to the world? Is it, um, it, it, you know, Cesar Chavez asked people in California, um, to, you know, put their money and their house and their lives on the line, but he also started the workers' rights movement, um, or a part of the workers' rights movement. So Cesar Chavez isn't a cult leader. Um, he was a hero, I would say. Um, well, okay, fine. We can, eh, you're right to roll your eyes at that. Uh, <laughs> Andy made listeners. a face Andy for those just, of you at home. He did make his face. And all right, all right, yeah. all right. That was, uh. <laughs> I, I'm being, I am, I am being. How about he did some yes, good things? I will, okay, all right. He's controversial, fairly. But I wouldn't call him a cult leader, and I definitely wouldn't call him a cult leader as a result of the sacrifice that he inspired. Uh, sacrifice itself is not inherently exploitative. Interesting. Right. I'd be interested to see what the... Um, I'm sure there are probably no records of this, but what, what was done with that um, you know money from the early Christian church. Yeah, there probably well, aren't records. Not to mention, I mean, the clear records of things like um, selling, or, or rather... Um, buying. Oh my gosh, I can't think of it. The term in the Middle Ages, tithing. The the church, tithing. What? Oh, oh. Tithing. It, but you said Middle uh, Ages, and by the way, when we talk about the Middle Ages church, definitely a cult, one hundred percent. No, yeah, like super exploitative. They were selling. Um, like they basically they would have you buy the 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 monks yes. and the and the friars would come around to your village and you would buy you would give them money. To buy basically like yeah, this you're talking about indulgences. Then like, indulgences, yeah, to thank like you. indulgences. Thank you, indulgences. Mi- That's medieval the Catholicism, word. undisputably a cult, in my opinion. You will not have any pushback from me, but we can't so, then extrapolate that to say that Christianity is always has been a cult. No, of course not. Um, but I think just to help people kind of contextualize how. I don't want to say flexible, um, but the the definition of a cult encom- does encompass some things beyond what you typically think about in terms of like Jonestown mm-hmm. and and um, Mormonism and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff like that. So I, I'm perhaps being a little bit rude to, or or I think probably the Amish would fit the bill. Um, to a certain extent, uh, mm. anyway. Although I imagine they probably flirt with some of the lines because it's not super like right. I would say in the sense you get the first two trying to gain. Something. You definitely with Amish. I would say you get the you get the thought reform to a strong degree. Um, I yeah. I don't know enough about Amish to say whether or not there's a charismatic leader. But fine, you want to say Jesus, then go for it. Um, I don't mm. necessarily see the exploitation, but but. I do see the exclusionary thing that I brought up during the, during the, there, there's that like, if, you, if you're Amish and you decide to stop being Amish, you're not welcome anymore. And that's, that, that's, that could be argued to be exploitive. So I guess the other part of the exploitative that, I mean, I'm not going to make this argument super strongly <laughs> huh. here. Every but good argument starts if, with if that. If you wanted line. to make it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, right. Um, like I'm not, I, I don't, I'm, I don't think that this is a, a super strong argument, but I do think you could make it. Um, that the, what they are exploiting people for is essentially labor and the propagation of the religion well, itself. Uh, no, with, uh, it's kind of soft. Uh, I would say, okay, now but, this is gonna veer off. The, it, I wouldn't, the, to, to call the, the Amish labor exploitative, I would call it communist. I would call it socialist. It's, I'd, I'd say it's pretty yeah, well. well uh, those are not mutually exclusive. They're at not all. mutually exclusive. No. <laughs> A lot of overlap. Well, no, there. no, I wouldn't say there's inherently overlap. <laughs> I would say again, we're talking about different beasts that communism can be, uh, exploitive or it can be communal. And I, I, it, it, look, we're all from Ohio, right? Right. Originally, like we've all been in mm-hmm. the Amish community. There's something kind of quaint about those communities. There's something very, um, there's something, I mean, yes, it's insular. Well, yeah. Um, and yet it's, it, there's, there, there's a sharing and a giving and a mutual, uh, support that I, I hesitate to call that exploitative. Right. But, I mean, just look but at the shunning. The, I agree. the shunning, the shunning is a little bit exploitative. That's, that's you, you awful. You don't see, and you don't see clinical depression. You don't see ADHD. You don't see nearly as much obesity. Um, well, I, think I don't know. You don't see probably, ADHD because they maybe don't believe in psychiatry. A diagnosis yeah, issue. I was going to say you probably don't see those first problems because they don't have that kind of. Medicine. I feel like we're all. Um, I think I think there are problems that come with modern technology that you're just going to cut right out. Like, uh, you know, if you link, like the ability to diagnose mental. I mean, well, I would say there's okay. I'm not saying this is the case, but at least here is a explanation is that people with mental illness are the ones who don't stay Amish. Um, not saying that's the case, but there there could be a selection bias in there. I also yeah. feel like yeah. we're all pretending like uh, we're experts on Amish people, and we're I'm s- not, sure as hell I'm right. not. I, I really I would, don't know that much about I would about say Amish right. there is no, it, but, in my experience, uh, from what I've seen, there is no more better community as a whole building than watching one of these barn raisings where the entire community comes together oh, and so cool. spends an afternoon building a barn. I will go ahead and put yeah. a video of that happening in the doobly-doo because it is astounding. Ooh, yes, but that's yeah. that's people yeah. so, like, right. coming together to help each other. They're not getting personal benefit out of it other than these people are going to help me come build my barn at some point or whatever. Which is not insignificant, but let's get off the Amish. Let's get back to cults. So well, can I? Can I make? And, a, um, can I just? We, we've been talking. Most... Suggestion, real quick. I would like. I I want to continue having this conversation, but if you're comfortable with it, David, I'd love to hear your uh, experience. What happened? Because yes. I think that could help okay. inform the rest of our conversation. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And and For first sure. of all, I want to say before I say that experience, I'm going to say two things. Um, first of all, so far, um, we have still been a little bit stuck in discussing cults from a religious perspective, which I think is, uh, does an injustice to the harm of what the sociological condition of a cult is. Um, I, I, later in this episode, I would really like to open up the discussion to non-religious cults. However, my, my cult was religious, so, um... In answering that question, we're going to delay the, the, the non-religious thing for a bit. Um, the second thing that I, I'm going to say is I will not name my cult leader. 
Um, I will not name my cults. Um, and I will not name any other individual that I was in the cult with. Um, because in part, um, in part, I respect certain aspects of the cult. I would put it in the spectrum of a benevolent cult. I believe that the leader herself is, um, well-intentioned and, and just not aware of the harm that she's doing. But there is harm being done. Harm that was done to me. Harm that was done to my ex-wife. Um, I'm still part of my depression that I mentioned earlier is related to leaving the cult and the um, doubt and self-questioning and and severing of relationships that came along with that. Um, and yet I do believe that that in her mind, and I, I do think that she is a traumatic narcissist that I mentioned earlier, um, and that that's how it became a cult. But, um, in that question that I mentioned about who is the exploitation for, um, in my cult, that wasn't, it wasn't very clear for a long time. Um, because the cult itself does attempt to do a lot of good. Um, it does give to charity, it does work, um, it spends a lot of work for a, um, greener future, for a Save the Earth campaign. Um, it believes that it is working towards, um, the betterment of this world, and in, in many ways it is. Um, and yet, and yet, um, it asks for a sacrifice from its members, or it doesn't ask that's the thing about this one. It doesn't ask for the sacrifice. The desire to sacrifice is is nurtured and grown implicitly, never explicitly. Um, mm. But that the degree of sacrifice that is made by so many of the members is um, un. It's it's not balanced and it's not okay and it's not healthy and it's not sustainable and. It for what what bits of good that I think that it legitimate legitimately does, um, I think that the people who who are working towards that good are are doing so uh, from because of thought reform and are sacrificing more than more than is fair. Um, so, so there's a certain amount of respect that I still maintain towards the cult, which is why I won't name anybody involved. Um, I'm probably going to say enough details that a very curious person could just start Googling things and figure it out, but, um, I'm personally not going to give names. That's, that's all I want to say. Can you, can you tell um, us a little bit more about sure. the thought reform? Like, what are the mechanisms of that? Like, how does that work? It, do you mean in mine or do you mean in general? Yeah, in your in your experience. In ours. Um, okay. So she is, is this we we were um like I said, we were a religious cult. Um we were How yes. can we 
I, I mean, I definitely want to hear about that, but I'd love to maybe start at the beginning and how you were even first introduced to it, um, just to gain some more context for how that thought reform actually yeah. transforms your well, mindset. And that's also part of the thought reform in my case, is because the way I was introduced to it is because my ex-wife was a member when I met her. Okay. Um, hmm. And so I met this woman, and I, you know, fell in love with her, I, I think. More or less. I did. Slowly. But I did. Um, and I was never super comfy with it. But the the cult is based in pantheism. Um, whether you or not know, let me just explain for the listeners. Um, pantheism is a spiritual view that uh, finds a degree of legitimately in all religions. It considers um, every religion to be... Uh, an a, an independently worthwhile exploration of um, a not entirely knowable um, spiritual truth. So pantheism, pantheists generally um, believe in, to some degree, aspects of Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and Shintoism and um, etc. Um, and the... The Masters, I will call her the title that she gave herself. Um, she she titled herself Master. And so I won't name her, but I will just call her The Master. Um, the Master's teachings were pantheistic. So she would read to us from the Bible and from the Quran and from the sutras. Um, she endorsed every religion that came before. Um... And she wove together a very compelling narrative of spirituality that was very similar to the one that I independently had before I encountered the cult. Um, it vibed with me. It's, it was like, yeah, no, this is basically what I believe. This is, this is more or less what I consider to be true. So when I met my ex-wife, and she started sharing these teachings with me, they were not, um, they were not, uh, what's the word? Um, objectionable. They were not objectionable to me. They were, they were fine. I was like, yeah, I dig that. That's cool. Those words are cool. She's saying some pretty cool things. I mostly agree with these things. Um... But then there's, it crossed a threshold at some point. Um, it wasn't enough to just think that, oh yeah, no, these philosophies are cool. I dig that. That wasn't enough. Um, no, I had to be initiated. I had to go through, I had to go through a ceremony in which I was given a secret mantra that only the disciples could know. Um, and this initiation separated me from everybody else, all of us. Um, once you've been through the initiation, now you're one of the sacred people. You're one of the people who is bringing light into the world through your enlightenment. Um, you've received these, these secret words, and by repeating them, you bring positive energy into the world at a level that, you know, nobody's ever seen before, to quote the president, I guess. Um... <laughs> You know, and 
And now it's your sacred duty to, to meditate for two and a half hours a day and to, um, you know, go to every retreat that you can and, you know, to meet the master who by just being in her presence, um, through her divinity, um, raises your something that makes you more of a magnet of goodness in the world or something like that. I don't know. Um, and that never really sat well with me. And if we're going to be real, this is actually the reason for the divorce. Um, because as much as I tried, I could never quite overcome my agnosticism. Um, I couldn't pass thought reform. Not completely. I mean, I agreed with a lot of things, and I did go to retreats, and I did meditate, and I I agnostically accepted, like, okay, yeah, maybe that whole thing about us, like, being magnets for goodness is true. I guess that's possible. Um, like, I didn't, like, reject the notion outright, like, because I was too agnostic to do that either. <laughs> but the longer I was in it, the more the fact that I was inherently agnostic, no matter, no matter how much I, no matter how much I said like, yeah, sure, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. No matter how much I was like, yeah, all right, I guess that, that could be true. Um, it was, it was increasingly problematic that I wasn't a full devotee, that I wasn't absolutely certain 100% that her word is gospel, that everything she says, even when it was fucking contradictory, is always true. Um, I, I was like, okay, but yeah, but that one time she said, like, this thing, and then, like, you know, three years later she said that thing, and those are kind of opposites, and, like, that would really bother people when I pointed that out, and... Um, I felt a pressure to, I felt a social pressure to not think for myself, to, um, to allow the objectification of one person in a relationship as the, as the means of enforcing the dominance of the subjectivity of the other, um, which is that super academic and hard to digest quote I said before. Um, but I felt that I experienced that I, can, I was asked to not think for myself, to not have an interpretation. And I tried and I tried to say like, okay, but like, I mean, I see why you might think that when she said X, it meant Y, but maybe she said X because it meant Z. And no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't have your own interpretation. We've decided what it is and you either you know, obey us, submit, submit. That's the key word. You either submit to that interpretation or you are not a committed disciple. Andy, you're raising your hand. What's up? Yeah, uh, so I was wondering, um, first of all, really quickly, to go back a minute, you said duty. Important. Important. Oh, ha ha. So I wanted to Mm. giggle at that really quickly. Um, uh, yeah. Good job. Um, 
<laughs> just to lighten the mood a little bit, I guess. Uh, anyway, um, okay. Can you read that line again? The object of the, 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 the ab- academic of... one, because I feel like it's just better to give the yeah. like layman's interpretation. But I can give no. the quote one more time if you well, need me I, to. I, I'd like to. I just want to kind of break it apart and make sure that I understand the words. Yeah, and... it's a complicated. It's a very academically heavy quote. Um, That's okay. I, I, okay. I went. I did go to college. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. All right. Again, and this comes from from, <laughs> from this comes from Daniel Shaw. And if you Dan Google Daniel Shaw and this quote, you'll find the paper. But I failed to take note of the title of the paper. I'll find it. But in um, the do. Thank you. All right, Daniel Shaw. Traumatic narcissism. The objectification of one person in a relationship as the means of enforcing the dominance of the subjectivity of the other. The dominance of the subjectivity. Okay. I like that part of the quote, quote the most because it doesn't, it means that the, the other isn't entirely subjective. It means that their subjectivity is the dominant aspect of their identity. It's being asserted over top of everything yes. else. That's, that's what I, what really caught my ear as well. So, okay, thank you. Yeah, I just, it's a, it's powerful once you, like, if you think about what all those words mean rather than getting, like, overwhelmed by the right. academic, academicity of it. It's, it's basically um, like your, your opinions are being, uh, dominated by another person's more important or more correct opinions. That's exactly the right, right way to say that. Right. It's got to be terrifying to realize that first time that you are asserting your own opinion and it gets slapped down. No, it's not terrifying <clears throat> the first time. It's terrifying when you start to question it. Mm. Wow. The first the mm. first time, the first time it gets slapped down, you barely notice. The first time it gets slapped down, you're just like, "Oh, okay, I was wrong, my bad." And then it keeps happening. And then and then it kind of gets more extreme. And then it gets to a point where it's getting slapped down in ways that that make you question behaviors that you think are fine or or not question behaviors you think aren't fine. And after a few years of it, when you start to be when you start to realize that maybe I've given up my own critical thinking and and outsourced it to somebody else, that's the moment that it's terrifying wow. because there's this feeling of there's this feeling of what if they are right what if what if I'm wrong what if what if my questioning really is wrong what if what if I should submit what if what if this idea that I have that maybe I should stop submitting is wrong that's when the the trauma starts in With- in my experience would there be social consequences for, like, if you had a certain status and you asked an, an inappropriate question or had an inappropriate interpretation, could you then lose that status or or be yes. shunned by other people? Can you expand on that at all? Well, it... Yes. Um, no, now, okay, so... The only time I saw a person with status uh, lose status is because they they legitimately messed up and they probably kind of deserved 
to. In that case, so there's two parts to your answer. Um, is that in my cult, which I do put on the more benevolent side of the spectrum, um, it's still a cult. I was damaged by it. There are people that were damaged by it. But it's not Jonestown. Um, it's not the Masons. There is a spectrum. I want to be clear about that. Um, the only person I ever saw lose status was at a retreat when, um, we had some sort of problem with the, the sewage. There were just so many people there that, uh, there was this, there was this issue with the sewage and there was this issue with where people were sleeping. Um, and a person who was high status, um, told us that we weren't allowed to set up tents in the more naturey area where it was a little bit cleaner. Um, and when the master found out about that pers- that, that order, that we weren't allowed to have our tents in the cleaner area, that we were supposed to confine ourselves to the dirty area, um, when the master found out about that, that person was removed from their status, which was appropriate. Um, the second part of the answer to your question. No, I saw people ask wrong questions to the master during retreats and get yelled at in a terrifying way. Um, and, and no, they wouldn't be shunned by the community, but they would carry with them this deep sense of shame of having been scolded by the master. It would be psychologically damaging to them. No, people wouldn't shun them. They would usually support them and give them hugs after and be like, ah, yeah, master's wrath can be painful. But, but, it was, you didn't want to ask the wrong question to her. You didn't want to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. That would, that was a terrifying notion. So, um, I was wondering a little bit about, you mentioned that, part of what kind of pulled you into this cult was that there was sort of a pre-existing um compatibility of philosophy yep. right um and so and p- something that i at least have a sense of i don't know if it's actually accurate or not but i have this idea in my head that a lot of times cults kind of in, rather than being close a, a, a close fit that then it's like Oh no, you've almost got it. You just have, you're just a little bit wrong about this and, and, and you, now you understand and, right? Versus, um, sort of the everything you know is wrong approach. So, so there's a carrot, there's a Which carrot I think and a is stick, more and frequent. The carrot mm. keeps going further away and you have to, uh, like mm-hmm. move to this changing goalpost. So, like, for, for the example of Christianity, yes, I mean, the most important thing is that you're saved and all you need to do to do, to be saved is believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But there's more that you can continue doing after that. Like you can give to charity or do good works or try to live without sin or convert other people to Christianity. And all of those things are like, you know, that'll get you a better place in heaven, or that'll save you a lot of pain during the end times, or you won't have to do a penance or something. It's it's this moving goalpost that, like, yeah, now that we've got you saved, now there's something else that we need you to do, and something else that we need you to do, and something else that we need you to do. I think that notion of the moving goalpost is is perfectly articulated. Um to 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 what you said Andy this this thing about you have it all wrong that notion um no 
that is not typically how it works. Um, the most, the, the most closely, um, and this again comes from the literature. Um, I believe this is, I believe this is, uh, Lifton. Um, but I don't, I didn't actually record that part. Um, but, um, most of the time cults seek out, or the, I wouldn't say most of the time. I would say most of the cults we talk about, like Jonestown, the Masons, etc. Mansons, Mansons. Um, uh, <laughs> I was wondering. I don't know about anything that. about the Masons. If if you're a Mason, I I have no idea what you are. Anyway, mini fact check. Considering everything I know about the Masons and the Freemasons comes from that episode of The Simpsons, Homer the Great, where he joins the Stonecutters, I thought. We might want to have a short little fact check on what the Freemasons actually are. I'm going to read this directly from Wikipedia because I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Freemasonry or Masonry consists of fraternal organizations that trace their origins back to the local fraternities of stonemasons that from the end of the 14th century regulated the qualifications of stonemasons and their interaction with authorities and clients. Modern Freemasonry broadly consists of two main recognition groups. Regular Freemasonry insists that a volume of scripture be open in a working lodge, that every member profess a belief in a supreme being, that no women be admitted, although in some jurisdictions those who transition to women after being initiated may stay, and that discussion of religion and politics be banned. Continental Freemasonry, on the other hand, is now the general term for the jurisdictions which have removed some or all of these restrictions. Mini fact check. Um, uh, they're closer to a fraternity. I think so. Than... Anyway, the Mansons, oh. uh, Jonestowns, the Ma- the Mansons, etc. Um, the the closest that they get. Oh, oh, a uh, Scientology is maybe another good one. Um, the, the closest you get to the, oh, you have it all wrong, is that some of those more, and this is what I, I put on the spectrum of malevolent cults, um, they are, they do seek out the, uh, the young, um, and the, in, where's the, I wrote it down, hold up. (laughs) I'm so impressed that David came uh, in uh, notes uh, today. Stupid. It's like we never do any <laughs> research ahead of time. We never have any notes. You get a golf clap for that. Uh, that's not true. I always have research. I always have a Google sheet with all my research and bullet points. You're, I shouldn't say all of it. Most of the time. <laughs> certainly doesn't come no, across you, that you, way. I do. Anyway, to, to, to get back to that. So what you said, Andy, about the, the, um, the no, you have it all wrong. Those, those, the closest you get to that are cults that seek out the young, isolated, and, uh, transitory. So basically, people who are lost and have no idea what they think or believe. And then these malevolent Mm. cults will find these people that, like, have, they're just, they're looking for something. And it's not like, you have it all wrong, it's like, you don't have anything, here's something, here's something. Um, no, I would say that people with a defined perspective, um, are probably not particularly vulnerable to a cult that, uh, is based on something that is in opposition to that perspective. Either, either it will be a cult that just kind of twists 
that perspective just a little bit in that kind of shifting goalposts way that Pat said, or you're lost and looking for a perspective and somebody shows up and is like, here's one for you. So that makes a lot of sense because I, I know um, in America anyway, a lot of Americans who fall into various less religious cults, more like white nationalism and things like that, which I guess are borderline religious. Um, but the, like the alt-right and stuff, they... Ah, they now we're getting to, into the non-religious ones, yeah. which I want to um, talk about very much. They tend to kind of entrap people through self-help, um, self-help books and videos and stuff that, um, you know, these, they, they, they're targeting people who don't really have a clear vision of who they are and who they want to be and things like that and are looking for guidance. They're, sp- they're actively looking for guidance. So is the alt-right, is that actually a cult? Like, does that count? Like, uh, I, I haven't experienced that much, um, like running into what I would call alt-writers, except in like internet forums, but is that actually a cult? Okay. All right. So now we have to define the alt-right before we can answer that question. Um, and I would kind of prefer to, all right. So I would actually, I would prefer to um, position the alt-right as one half of Trumpism. Um, and, or maybe one third, one half, one half, let's put it one half, um, of Trumpism. Um, and yes, I will argue, and I will defiantly argue that Trumpism is a cult, and does meet all of the criteria that, that I've presented, but... As far as what the alt-right is, and this is bringing back to what you said before, Andy, about the, uh, sort of young, the young and, um, people looking for a way. I think that, I, now, now you're getting into sort of the, the followers of Jordan Peterson and Sargon of our, uh, of a, Sargon of, Sargon of something or other. Um, and, um, the, this is what I would put, so, the alt-right to me, is the younger side of Trumpism. Um, and that is very much the sort of, like, I'm looking for something, well, here's something. And, like, people latching onto that. But, um, the older side of Trumpism is very much the, like, twisting of something that, that you already kind of feel. And that taps into this notion of, um, the, this, this sort of, I don't know how to say it without being racist against Americans. Um, <laughs> the sort of yeah. cowboy mentality, the, the, um, uh, football and barbecue and sort of toxic male masculinity, well, and yeah, masculinity. as opposed to female masculinity. Like we have the, the, this. I don't know how to say this exactly. We love our freedom. We love Machismo? we love our freedom to the exclusion of everything else. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry right. about offending Americans. I think Americans <laughs> can either take a joke or uh, like if it helps you to express if it helps you to express the exact idea that you're trying to get at. Or they can and them. If you're worried yeah, about just... offending those snowflakes on the right, <laughs> don't worry about it. It has the same effect as calling white people honkies. You know, it's not really, like, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I guess I know what you're saying. But, um, 
there's yeah i when you the the who, which one of you said something about freedom to the exclusion that of everything else um uh, I, okay Nathan. and 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 you said toxic masculinity i want to i want to alter Machismo. that into toxic individualism mm. okay mm. yeah and Pat taking notes so to me the to me trumpism twists individualism into toxic individualism and it it takes toxic individualism and twists it into an almost apostolic apostolic uh, ap- apostolic 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 um devotion what what is apostolic apocalyptic <laughs> wait uh, like uh of after uh, all it, that work it, an adjective derived from yeah. apostle okay. yeah yeah like a you know the 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 divine faithful so the people that were already toxically individualistic trump has turned them into this divine priesthood of of don't tell me what to do at any cost and it has taken people that were you know very individualistic and turned them toxically individualistic it's it's just sort of shifted it's shifted the the expression of individualism among the individualistically inclined um, to an extreme point and to the degree that we see um, complete thought reform, yeah. anything that the leader says is true, no matter if he said the opposite yesterday, um, mm. you know, or in the same press conference, literally. Right. Right. Or, uh, and now obviously the most, I mean, there's been lots of exploitation, but I would say the most clear cut objective example of that is the like, don't wear a mask because, uh, that's reasons. what the Democrats want you to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Go well, die. I mean, Go I die. The, the immediate thing is, uh, Trump last week told, uh, churches to open back up yesterday yes, yes. and yeah. many and of them did told and governors and told governors if you try and stop it i'm going to overrule you even though he doesn't have that power yeah. right well that's that's him saying the charismatic right. leader bit the the fact that it works is because the thought reform already took place and the effect of that is exploitation which is why i said at the beginning of the episode that um, unlike Lyndon, I view that list as progressive instead of simultaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the charismatic leader that produces thought reform. It's thought reform that produces exploitation. Um, Although in this case, the charismatic leader came after the thought reform. Mm, arguable. I mean, I guess he was kind of a sort of a part of it, but a lot of those groups that you're talking about weren't really all that active on like his Twitter, his his political commentary through the Obama uh, administration was certainly notable, and it's hilarious now because it's aged so poorly. All yeah. of the things he criticized Obama for, he has done uh, right. falsely accused Obama for. He has turned around and done in abundance and can, blatantly. Can we put uh, Reddit Trump criticizes Trump in the doobly doo just yeah. for posterity? Oh. It's come up before. He just, he's done. He's somewhere around <laughs> but, 35, 36,000 tweets now. And so for virtually everything he yeah, does, what's a, he's criticized himself for that same thing in the past. Right. 
Which is so, what? Yeah. Okay, can I can I just can I ask you who's actually read 1984? All right, In high school. Uh, okay, but you remember it fairly well, ish. So the the you, thing that are I mean, like I'm not. So the the notion of double think, the mm-hmm. that that I think is the most prescient aspect of that right. novel to current times, um, and that that to me that notion of double think. Um, is, is the, not, it is not the process of thought reform, it is the goal of thought reform. But when you, when you start observing doublethink within a population, that is evidence that thought reform has occurred. So for, for someone who doesn't- think is the symptom of thought reform. Who's not familiar with the novel, like, what, what is doublethink? Doublethink is the ability to think, uh, and believe sincerely in one's own mind- two opposing facts at right. the same time. So black is white and uh in the novel uh we they would switch like we're at war with East Asia and then we're at war with Eurasia but whichever one we're at war with we've always been at war with and we've never been at war with the other one. Mm-hmm. Um up is down just two two completely opposite things the same way that in you know uh in it's also it's also an aspect of uh authoritarianism authoritarianism throughout history um that your enemy is simultaneously weak and and also overwhelmingly powerful okay so so it's very closely related to the concept of cognitive dissonance right but you don't actually feel cognitive distance from these opposing ideas well, no, right, it's well, sort of. Do you, are, do you know what cognitive? Andy, you brought up the term. Do you know what cognitive dissonance is, and how would you define it? So my understanding is that cognitive dissonance is the um, the feeling of kind of anxiety resulting from two directly opposing facts or views or, or mm-hmm. um, a fact that challenges right. your belief. So, maybe. I mean, I would say right. that's well. So, no, I think Andy said it exactly right. Andy said so, that I think almost the exact psychological definition of it. The idea here is like if if you are you have a preconceived belief, we all do. We can't help that. We are presented with a fact at some point in our life that directly opposes right. that view, and one response is to have this cognitive dissonance moment where you're overwhelmed with anxiety, really, and don't know what to think. I guess. Um, and maybe I'm over dramatizing that. Another kind of thing that people do is this double think where they just go, yeah, all right. I'm fine with this. Okay. I would say you're half right. Um, you, okay. you, you did give the correct definition of cognitive dissonance, which it, it, it is the feeling or experience of dissonance, difference between two opposing beliefs. Um, no, the, the double think is, is itself a reaction to cognitive dissonance. It's, okay. it's a way of soothing it. It's, gotcha. It's just deciding to like, eh, I can, I can deal with that feeling by just not questioning it. You're, the other one that, the, what you said was cognitive dissonance is the rational reaction to cognitive dissonance, which is mm. to self question, which is to reevaluate. Um, okay. but both reevaluation and double think are both reactions, reactions to, to cognitive. cognitive yes. dis- okay, got it. So how does this relate back to Trump? Because I think it does in a big way. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so what? How do Trump supporters react when they are presented, say, with the Trump? Uh, Trump criticizes Trump. 
They don't tweets. Oh, like you oh. show them. So this is something that I have some they, pretty immediate yeah. reference to because this is what I've chosen to do okay. with my off time. So for those of you who haven't heard the podcast <laughs> before, or haven't listened to the early episodes, I was trying to find a way to spend more time with my mom and inexplicably she has decided to spend her retirement on Facebook arguing with trolls from the right. And so I was like, Oh, yeah. I love doing so that. This is something that I've decided to jump in <laughs> and spend some time with my mom arguing with trolls. And it's not fair. Like, I think a lot of the people I meet at first. <laughs> some families go, you know, bowling. Some right. go to putt putt golf. The staples. Argue the, with Trump oh, Sorry. Nathan and so, his mom. Um, and she and I have sort of <laughs> split a little bit because she likes to be a little angrier about it. She, like, has trouble uh, keeping her stuff together. <laughs> and what I do, I have some... Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. Which is yes, understandable. Because these people are egging you on. They, that's the reaction they want from you. And so I have some pretty, uh. like, simple rules. I never attack anybody personally. I always provide sources for everything I have to say. And what I will tell you is most of these, most Trump supporters I can't reach in any way, shape, or form. And I will... That's you're both yeah, going about I'll it the wrong way. Thirty, like I'll respond to thirty different uh, messages to these people, and mm. let me let me see if this sounds familiar to you. Um, he didn't say that, or he didn't mean that, or mm. you interpreted it wrong, right? I or even if he mm. said it, someone else has done worse. I always think there's always yep. a justification, and that's that is that is exactly one on one. What you do is you <laughs> you go ahead and put up the video of him saying it. I will time mark it to the point where he said it, and they'll say, "Uh, nope, he didn't say it." Like they'll they'll quote what he said right. in text, and then say, "Yep," and that's not what he meant. You know, like here's one of my favorite <laughs> quotes: "Is you can't and 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 there is a way to deprogram cult members, but." Both your mom's anger and your rationality are neither of the two ways. Are or <laughs> not, not both of those ways are not the way to do it. But um, in response to your your approach, um, I love this quote, and you can do a mini fact check to find out who said it. I don't know, um, but uh, you can't you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. <laughs> Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. In 1721, Jonathan Swift, who would later go on to write Gulliver's Travels, wrote and published a short work called, and let me get this right, a letter to a young gentleman lately entered into holy orders by a person of quality. In that short book, he wrote, quote, Reasoning will never make a man correct an ill opinion, which by reasoning he never acquired. There are several versions of this that have shown up over the years and often are attributed to Swift. There's a fantastic website that I used to fact check this and that I love to use for quotes in general. It's called QuoteInvestigator.com and I'm going to include the link for this particular quote in the doobly-doo. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Um anyway, the way, by the way, to do deprogramming is through empathy. 
Um, it's not through challenge. Um, it is through uh, an understanding. It is through saying, ah, I see why you might feel like that. That does, that feeling does make sense, but have you, have you considered this or, or the, the Socratic method? Why, why do you think that this, if, why do you think X, if Y? And then be like, okay, well, but wait, does that work? I mean, I, again, and always you have to do the again. Again, I see why you might right. say that. Because you need to constantly be empathetic. And it's it's freaking it exhausting. And, that is, I w- and if you want to go through a deprogramming effort, you will spend you will spend 70 to 100 hours to deprogram a single person. Um, but right. that's how to do it. And I don't expect... So, um... No, no, Sorry, you had your hand go up. Go. Well, I have a I have a quote to read similar to the one uh, David brought up, but um, this is attributable to Sam Harris, who's um, a, I'm a big fan of. Um, it goes, if someone doesn't value evidence, what evidence are you going to provide to prove that they should value it? Right. If someone doesn't value logic, what logical argument could you provide to show the importance of logic? Right. Here's what I will, here's what I will say. Um, when I have these arguments, when I have these conversations on Facebook, I expect maybe somewhere in between a five to eight percent success rate. And what success looks like for me is at the end, we agree to disagree. We come to a, an agreement where, okay, what he did sure may like they get to make all their justifications and I'll read any source they put in front of me. I will, I will not try and say this source is not good or anything like that. What I will de- do is if they give me a shitty source, I'll respond with 20 sources that say the opposite. But that doesn't always result in, like, normally it doesn't result in anything. Eventually, what success looks like is they stop responding. Which I think normally mm. means they're thinking oh. about it and, or they've been back into a corner and mm-hmm. instead of attacking, they've decided to back off. Okay, so two notions there. One is 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 what you've defined as success is this notion of planting right. seeds, where you're not gonna get you're not gonna get the validation that you've affected them, but maybe you've planted something in their mind that will blossom later. But even if that's not the case, I want to validate your effort. You are not wasting your time because on social media, when you engage in that type of interaction. It doesn't matter if you convince the person that you're talking to. What matters is that there are always going to be people who are not terribly informed and not terribly considerate that will read both, will read everything and will be saved from the cult by your arguments. In other words... When I do take the time to do what you do and do that rationality thing with people that can't be reasoned with, it's not because I expect to change them. It's because I want to influence yeah. fence sitters. And there's all, there's always fence sitters. There's, there's, they just, they're everywhere. So I want to validate your effort and say it's not a waste of time. But I would say you shouldn't define your success by whether or not you deprogram right. a cult member. Um, you should define your success by the fact that you may be saving people from getting in. And I will say, 
there are three or four of these people that have, you know, in quotes, friended me, which I think is a success. And I know for a fact there are several people who sort of would brush off any like liberal snowflake, wouldn't listen to a thing they have to say, but they will engage with me now because I've taken the time to respectfully engage with them on other stuff. Exactly. No, and that's, but that's part of the empathy thing. The engaging right. with them on other things is part of that empathy thing I was talking about. Hmm. So, anyway. We've talked a little bit about, now, uh, out of curiosity, David, the cult that you belong to, I have a couple questions. So, okay. first of all, about how big was it? You know what? I never, I never got a specific number. Definitely in the millions, probably tens of millions. Wow. I know that. No kidding. The, uh, largest retreat I went to was around 200,000. Okay. That's incredible. Wow. Okay. It's, what? It's mostly. I did not Asia expect based. that answer. Out of 200,000, there were like maybe a hundred Americans. <laughs> so you're unlikely. I, there's, there's a place in New York City. That I know, that I visited, that they have a restaurant yeah. in her name, um, hmm. but it's not. And L.A. is probably the the largest epicenter of that cult in America. But there's yeah. not a huge amount of Americans. It's mostly an Asian cult. I'd say about fifty percent of the members are Chinese. Um, another thirty yeah. percent are Vietnamese, and then another fifteen percent are. Korean and Taiwanese and Thai sure. and etc. That makes sense. I think pantheism is a pretty hard sell in most Western societies. Right. Mm. So, um, and she, she does even in her pantheism, she does favor Buddhism. Like she'll, she'll talk about mm. the Bible now and then. Um, and she's, she's certainly not discriminatory against it. Um, but, but most of her, at least in the, her later in her later years, I think in her earlier teachings there was more Christianity. But in the past like five to ten years, it's it's been a lot of Buddhism. Mm. Uh, if I may ask, and don't feel obligated to answer, is your ex-wife still a member? <sighs> no, and it pisses <laughs> me off. Do you know uh, this is new news? Actually, um, I oh. just had this huge confession with her like two or three weeks ago. Where I finally told her that I wasn't in the cult anymore because I was so afraid to break her heart then. And cause, you know, when we divorced, like there was like this whole like, but you know, I'll still be with you in our master's heaven, blah, 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 nonsense. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't want her to know that I wasn't in the cult anymore. I thought it would be to her almost like a second divorce. And, mm-hmm. And also, like I said, the cult is really a lot of the reason that we had the traumatic tensions that we had because she was so, so dogmatic. And Mm. my agnosticism and her dogmatism caused so many arguments. And finally, finally, like two or three weeks ago, I finally bring myself to be like, I'm sorry, but I'm not in the cult anymore. And she's like, oh yeah, me too. And I'm like, Oh, well, all right. Can, did you refer to it as a cult while you were in the cult? No. Did, did people acknowledge that it was a cult? I, I would jokingly call it that to, to some of you, my friends, um, 
you know, you you remember Bree and Brittany and Hannah. Yeah. Um, I would yeah. jokingly call it the cult to them, even while I was in it. But no, I wouldn't call it the cult to other people in the. Cult. I think we're using it right now as like a placeholder name. Just right. Like, this is the name of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because, like I said, I won't name it out of out of a, a certain right. amount of respect. And yeah. I don't know other, but I just, maybe misplaced emotions. Uh, yeah. um, did your can I ask? Did your ex wife like elaborate on why she left? I mean, do you think your agnosticism helped that along? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, she did elaborate, but not to a degree that I can give you a causal reason for it. Certainly. Um, I will say that. The things she said I agreed with. She said she said she looked around at the people in it and she noticed that they weren't getting better. And hmm. the master promised that her love and radiance and divinity would lift everybody away from their problems. And she said she looked around and noticed that people weren't getting better. And she said that that's kind of what made her realize it to a degree to a degree i think it was me leaving her i don't know she didn't say that but it was traumatic for her too our divorce was hard for both of us and i i suspect that the pain of that divorce possibly shocked her into reflection mm. that other side of cognitive dissonance that we talked about i don't know that but that's my hypothesis um yeah so so there's a lot of things that i don't know that we'll totally have time to get into today like further expanding on the um non-religious cults and talking about things like mm. uh you know scientology or like uh Branch Davidians or Jodestown or stuff, but um, to to have a takeaway from today, what would be your advice to like a a person who finds themselves in this organization and maybe doesn't know that they're in a cult, and b someone who might be vulnerable to uh, being recruited by a cult, and and what can we what can we arm people with? that they will be better consumers of information and better um, better able to resist um, cults in the future. Don't, don't let your shame be a fence. Um, once you start to have those notions that maybe you've been bamboozled, maybe you've gone in the wrong direction, maybe you've, maybe you've been taken in, maybe you've been scammed. Once you start to have those notions, um, they can result in an overwhelming sense of shame. And in a lot of cases, that shame, that potential shame, is what keeps people in the cult. Because as long as they don't leave, then that shame isn't realized. As long as they double down, as long as they commit to the double think, then they can stave off that shame. Um, 
it is a painful thing to go to your family, to go to your friends, and to say to them, I made a mistake, I was stupid, I was tricked, I went the wrong way. That is so hard to do. But if your family and friends are worth your love, then they will forgive you, they will support you, they will hug you, they will let you cry on them, they will listen to you. And it's by doing that that you get out. It's by... It's by confronting your own failure and allowing yourself to admit that you were tricked, that you can start to heal from it. And the best way to do that is to just have somebody hug you. And and for for the, the second person, the person who like might be um, let's say like a, a young homeless person or someone who's like wandering through life and is socially isolated, doesn't have this uh, support group. Um, what could we say to them that, that might uh, make them a little bit tougher to, uh, to get into one of these organizations? Ah, now you're asking the really hard question because you're asking how to make the most vulnerable people less vulnerable. Right. Well, maybe they listen to this um, podcast. One, so. And my guess is, if you are vulnerable in that <laughs> way, you're not going to be self-aware enough to seek out uh, this sort of advice, this sort of information. You're probably not. Um, I think my, my answer to that question isn't to them. Uh, my answer to that question is that the 1% to 5% of them that are strong enough to do it, just will. And and the very sad truth is that a lot of those people won't. Um, I don't know what to tell them. Um, I know people like that, that have pulled themselves out on their own with no support, and I don't know what advice to give them. I think that they just were that way. Hmm. Um, and, and the truth is that there will people that will be taken in. May I, may I offer a religious parable? Love, love one. Um, this one comes from Hinduism and it's, it's based in the notion of reincarnation, which whether or not you believe in just, I'm making a parable. Well, I guess you kind of have to believe in it, which I do. Anyway, there's this story in Hinduism of a man who was, he was a terrible man. Uh, he beat and raped his wife. Um, he committed atrocities. Um, he went to a guru at some point. I, I can't remember in the story, actually, if he goes to the guru before or after he he um violates his wife but um the guru knows that he is undeserving of enlightenment and the guru gives him a mantra that is incomplete it is it is 
a useless string of words that will not lead him to enlightenment. And one of his students says, you know, you've just, you've just ended his hope of salvation in this life. And the guru says, yes, I have. But this life is one of millions and that failure in this life will be his lesson in the next. Mm. I do believe in reincarnation. I am spiritual and I recognize that this parable is maybe not very moving to people who don't hold that belief. But to me, those unfortunate people who do waste a life and fail to to extract themselves from an abusive situation, maybe it's my own blind optimism, but I choose to believe that it's part of the learning mm. of their soul. Right, it's, it's either a great story or a terrible story, depending on your take on uh, reincarnation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I, you're right. The, you're right. It is very much based on that. One question I'd like to ask you, based on where you are on this end of things now, is not so much about the people themselves and what they can do, because I think when you're in that it's not always going to be easy for you to see that you're in the cult or that you are a vulnerable person or to turn away the help these people offer you. What I'm curious about is on this side of things now, where you are, is there any advice you give to those people's loved ones who have to sit there and watch this happen? Is there anything that like I could do to help a friend or a family member who falls into one of these traps other than just support them. Yeah. Well, there's a couple different there's a couple different answers and I don't know which one is exactly the right one, but I know that each one can be effective in different circumstances. Um and it it sort of depends on their level of commitment and also the level of toxicity of the cult. Um first of all, this is one thing I want to say to Anybody and everyone. Um, there are certain things that are illegal. Um, there are certain, you can, if, if, if the most extreme, if you know somebody in the most extremely malevolent version of a cult, the, the Mace, the Mansons, not the Masons. <laughs> We've really Manson been shitting on the Masons or the this Jones episode. Types. Yeah, I, well, there's that end, man. Anyway, um, the Mansons, Hate the ends. Jonestown types. If you know somebody that th there there are cults that exploit people in illegal ways, and if you know somebody in one of those, and they're rare, they're like the 1% of cults, if you know somebody who's being exploited in an illegal way, you can involve the authorities. But that's a rare, that's a rare situation. In the other 99... Well, and for anybody who listened to the show, they know I hate the 1% of almost anything. <laughs> uh, in the other ninety nine percent of cults that aren't overtly illegal, um, there's still a there's still a gradient of toxicity and malevolence, um, and I would say that depending on your loved one's level of commitment and their level of toxicity, the answer can range from cutting them out of your life to 
listening and being empathic while offering uh alternative mm-hmm. views. If if they're toxic enough that you choose the route of severing a relationship with them, make sure that the bridge isn't burned. Make sure that they feel like they have the choice to give up their toxicity and return to your love and acceptance and receive forgiveness at any time. Um, you might have to tell them, look, as long as you're saying these things and doing these things, we can't have a relationship. But if you ever change your mind, the door is always yeah. open. Um, on the other end of the spectrum is, is maintaining contact and being like, all right, aunt, nana, whatever random name, um... Yeah, I hear you. I know why you're angry, but I think that's stupid. But, you know, I love you anyway. <laughs> um, and that's the spectrum. And that's the spectrum. And you kind of have to choose where on that spectrum based on just, just how toxic they're being. Always give them a path back. Never, never erase the path to leave the cult. I think most of us are familiar with somebody in the Orange Man cult at Thanksgiving or whatever. So, we've dealt with that. Well, not there anymore. Right, and and if you're if you're leaving one of these cults, what a, what a lot of people are losing is you're losing all of your support. You're losing all of your friends. Exactly. You're losing all of your family. Exactly. All the people that would have your back. So, being able to transition from that to still having a good support group is incredibly important. People are basically survival machines you know you're you're trying to figure out the best way that you can survive and if uh you're forced to give up all of this support all of this family all of these friends you're you're not likely to do that especially if you don't have a good alternative right exactly exactly Mm. well said i feel like there's still so much more to talk about with this, maybe we revisit this down the road because... I'm happy to talk th- about cults anytime, man. This was like... I mean, we covered a lot, and I still I still feel like there's, there's just yeah, more and more. Yeah, we're just scratching the surface here. Well, I was, I was going <laughs> to say, like, I can't thank you enough uh, for not only, like being a guest on uh, the podcast, which I really appreciate, but what you shared is really personal and I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's, it's very appreciated. Well, I can't, I can't thank you enough, not only for inviting me, but for giving me a voice to, to share these things because, um, as an ex cult member, this is important to me. And I think, I think I said this a little bit at the beginning about how most of the pop media focus on cults, um, is centered around the, the worst cults, the most extreme, the most overt and harmful. But the, the mild cults, the gray cults, the kinds of cults that I got out of, yeah, they do, they, they might do some good things. And that exploitation part of it might be a little bit nuanced. And 
and hard to decipher, and yet the psychological harm it has caused me is is deep. Mm. And and um I want people like me who are in a gray cult to be a little bit more willing to confront that possibility. And, you know, don't think that just because you're not the Mansons, I said it right this time, <laughs> don't think don't think that just because you're not the Mansons means you're not in a cult. It would have been really funny if you messed it up. <laughs> but we're not giving you a pass, Masons. We're, we're looking at you, too. I, dear yeah. Masons, I know nothing about you. <laughs> I think they'll I be think happy the, to hear the that. last thing I wanted to get across <laughs> is you can't forget how important it is to friends and family who need support like this uh, to share uh, some precious moments with them. Ooh, transition. I'm smelling one. <laughs> nice. Precious moments. I love how we do a smooth transition and then call it out. It's not smooth anymore. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I would like to go last with the precious moment. Absolutely. I can, I can do mine because I was thinking about it earlier in the episode. Um, because Pat had talked about, um, the people in Hong Kong and how their important things happening. One thing that has happened is, uh, there are pictures, and I'll make sure to link some of them in the doobly-doo. People have come out in force again into the streets, packed. Hundreds of thousands, if not more, people are out in the streets in Hong Kong fighting for their rights. And I just wanted to say to the dumb stay-at-home protesters, this is a thing that you could protest about. This is a thing where it makes sense to maybe still be as safe as possible, mm. but really that's your that's your freedoms that's your rights being taken away from you and that's a legitimate reason to go out and protest not being able to get a haircut that's not a f***ing legitimate reason to go for a protest yeah i mean obviously the the haircut thing is a caricaturization um it's a straw man well but they they literally hold up but signs saying there. i mean i want to get a haircut that is literal like their democracy is being taken away whereas these protesters are like they've had to be cooped up in their houses they haven't been able to work for a few weeks but they've gotten more than right. enough unemployment well, I, think, I think they may be wrong but i think the so argument is essentially the same is that um you know their their democracy and their freedoms are being eroded and i think there might even possibly be a case a rational case to make that um, there are suspicious things that are being passed in government at the same time as the coronavirus lockdown is going yes. on. They're and not making they're not making, they're not making that right that. argument, but I think that that could exist. Yes, no, I I think what you're saying is fair, <laughs> and uh, like we talked about in the yeah. episode we recorded last week, I think there are genuine concerns that we need to make sure that our democracy is held up. But also, on the other hand, I'd like to say, <laughs> those guys. Yeah, that no, I, I, will, I will agree with the... Well stated. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Well, raspberries so my, aside. My maybe not favorite political candidate did something this week. Um, so Joe, oh, Joe Biden said something my... pretty unfortunate. Um, he was reaching out. I, I think he was on this. Uh, he was on this podcast and um, with Charlemagne, maybe Charlemagne. Yeah, yes. Charlemagne, and I think reaching out to the African American community, community, and uh, maybe taking like a more uh, relaxed and um, not not super vigilant um, policing of his tongue, um, because he said something really unfortunate. He said. Uh, if uh, you're undecided between voting for him or voting for Trump, that that meant that you weren't black. You ain't uh, black. You ain't. You, you ain't, said black. ain't black. He tried. He tried um, to, to to linguistically to slang it. Slang it. Yeah. Um, I think we and, sometimes forget uh, that oof. Biden is this gaffe machine. Like that's all he does. Like that's what he does. So it's going to be a fun campaign. Yeah, but you know what? I he, mean, maybe this. He apologized. And like yeah, that's a that's a thing that so, the dude right now doesn't do, right? Right. Well, so I mean, I think uh, probably a lot of people don't need any explanation for why this is a gaffe, but um, I mean, the idea is that he's going to teach you what blackness is, <laughs> which or, or is deny stupid. people of their of their blackness. Terrible. And I mean, that's. Even in a joking way, that's that's like a really bad look. It's it's messed anybody. up. It's messed up. But again, I'm gonna say like the next day he was like, "Oops, uh, no, my bad for reals though," which is not a thing that Orange Man does. So right. can we just can we just, I, can I point that out? Right, and I would say that the it, there's obviously no truth to it because Trump supporters all over the world. Well, all over the country, Trump supporters all over the country vote against their own best interests all the time. So black people are allowed to do that, too. They are. They are absolutely allowed to do that and still be black. And what he said was stupid and wrong. But then the next day he was like, "Eh, "Okay, all right. That was kind of stupid and wrong. So it it took him a little while, though. There was a day of time. There was a period of time where it was hard for him to admit that that was wrong. Well, and Biden keeps on telling people like. If you don't like me, don't vote for me. Like, stop telling people not to vote for you. But Joe, yeah, wait, this wait, is wait, not wait, how wait. you win an election? <laughs> wait, I want to say, I, I, no, 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 so, no, no. Wait, here's I the thing. need to say something to what Pat just said. Okay. Also, I agree with you, Nathan. That is stupid. But this whole notion, and this gets into a lot of other things, and there should be a pod- podcast on canceling at some point. This notion that taking time to apologize is, uh, is is a demonstration of insincerity, I will say, and I will assert my opinion as a linguist, is the opposite of the truth. In a, mm. in a heated moment, we cannot think very clearly. I believe, and I know this is counterintuitive, and it's not the way that the media and we, and I include the social media, treat it, but I think a delayed apology is more sincere. Because if you've done something stupid... You need time to step back, reflect, think about it, and be like, oh, yeah, that was stupid. A person who apologizes five minutes after saying something doesn't mean it. They're responding to the backlash. It's not sincere. Mm. I do not trust an apology that comes too quickly. Hmm. That's a really good point. I take your point on that, but I I think it also (laughs) reveals a lot of uh, problematic thinking. Well, yeah, obviously, Joe Biden has problematic thinking. I, I, I think that 
among the like uh relatively you know thoughtful younger generation that we all represent various degrees of political spectrum that we occupy we can all agree that joe biden is problematic on varying degrees i i don't believe that's going to be a terribly controversial statement on this podcast we're absolutely gonna have to do another biden podcast but I do take that point about uh, you know delayed apologies. I think I mean that that is that is probably the right. Well, take. I mean, I guess what boggles my mind or what frustrates me, I guess maybe I don't know. Um, it should be especially right now during quarantine and when there's no debates and there's no you know town halls and stuff. It should be so easy. For Joe Biden's campaign to just keep him quiet. Don't, every time, like every, he constantly makes these mistakes and does these gaffes and they, every single time it hurts his, his viability, it hurts his chance because every single time there's a, a portion of, see, this is what should have happened in the Republican Party four years ago with Trump, where every time he made one of those gaffes, it should have chipped away at, like, Okay, the yeah, but it didn't, him, right? and are you really but instead, sure this is where now? cult are thing really sure came in. Now? Oh, it doesn't. It, for, for Trump? No, it doesn't, and that's because there's okay. a, there's a cult around it. But the Democrats, and don't, there's not that, the Democrats are just not right. that way. And so every time Biden makes one of those kinds of mistakes, it does chip away at the people I who are willing to vote for him. A, a, a portion of those people are going to go, all right, you know what? This is just one too many. I can't do it. Uh, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a significant. It might not be a big time, but every time he does it, it's over again and it's death, death by a thousand cuts, paper cuts. I might be a bad well, example right. because I've never liked him in the first place, so... Well, I never really liked him in the first place either, but, you know, can I... Look, as as a person... Look, Joe Biden was my, like, second least favorite candidate in the primaries, but I'm... I wouldn't... You might Bloomberg. Yep. Um, but, oh, like, oh, yeah. look, look, there's a lot to criticize about him, and I'm not gonna say he isn't problematic... But I also, have you, like, read any of the news about what his campaign is, like, planning now that coronavirus is happening? He's moved a lot farther to the left in the past month than I think is being realized. And I, right. honestly, I'm encouraged. I, I, he's, he, he's still, if I could go back in time and be a dictator to choose the nominee, he wouldn't be it, but... Uh, he is changing in a pro- in an appropriate direction in response to real issues. And you know what? He's got my, he, I, I won't say like enthusiastic, but committed, um, solid, um, support. So I want to say two things before we move on to Andy's precious moment. Uh, one, uh, I'm voting the same way in 2020 that I did in 2016 against trump so whoever they put there that that's going to be my person so it's biden Boo. and i am what i would say about biden is he will listen to experts he will exactly. listen to other people's opinions and take those opinions into account right and also more importantly he has shame yes yes he and can, that's important he can be embarrassed into doing the right thing which is not right. something 
that the orange man can do. And also not something I'm entirely sure yeah. Hillary Clinton could have done. I, I Honestly, I like him more than Clinton. I voted for her in 16, but I, right. I, he wasn't my favorite, Biden, but I like him more than her. Yeah, I think the the argument for Biden, for me, kind of basically goes, I'm not going to not vote. There are no alternative candidates that warrant a second look. By the way, the, the Libertarian Party officially nominated Joe Jorgensen. Um, I've never even heard that name in my life. That's all right. I didn't before this primary either, and I was in that party for a while. Um, Are you sure but, they aren't soft Jays? I want to say Yo Jorgensen so bad. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, we actually did. Ooh, I like that. And she's she's a she's ridiculous. I mean, she's not. She's one of the more sensible libertarians that were running, but she had like it, she is definitely taking that party. Backwards from 2016. Gary Johnson and Bill Weld were at least like the kind of guys who other parties went, yeah, I disagree. Maybe I disagree with them wholeheartedly, but they, that's a respectable politician. We are far away from that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I just, I just want to say really quickly, if I may get, get a snipe in, (laughs) I did like Gary Johnson quite a bit, but you voted for him in 2016, and he was a gaff machine, also. So I don't he want had, to hear. He had a few big blunders for sure, and I I did vote <laughs> also for called him. But... Gaffs. Also called sure. gaffs. Okay, same thing. Yes, I understand. Um, but like, I'm just saying, I liked him. No, I, I think him. He, I was. He was cool. Under no circumstances was I calling him a a, a perfect candidate. He was certainly right. flawed. I'm just, you but, like to call you. All right, say maybe Biden I don't think gaff, it's great that, that Biden like sniffs girls' hair. And the point is, Biden, <laughs> right, no, no, that's right, a yeah. bigger that's we, a bigger we, deal than the gas. We gotta, uh, what the, I was the, trying the to kind of get to is like we got to move on. We're coming up on two hours here, guys. Okay. Come on, what, <laughs> you're right. What I was trying no, the the sniffing hair thing that's that's a real problem. Yeah. Yes. So it what is. I, Andy, what's your precious moment? Well, I'm still trying to get to my point about the Biden thing <laughs> is that uh, right. his gaffes, his mistakes, I think are he's the type of candidate who if he submits to a, you know, a strong like supportive team, a candidate uh if his if his campaign team is is strong enough and he listens to them and then if he gets elected in his cabinet and whatever advisors are strong enough and he listens to them i think that it's not likely to produce catastrophic results <laughs> okay so that's yeah, okay. my argument for biden okay all right all right you got a pressure on <laughs> well, <I> will... yeah. <laughs> um anyway my precious moment, I have to kind of think about and try and remember now. You've had like two uh, hours. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I got sucked into that whole like loop de loop You need notes. Uh, you need episode notes. He keeps them. He talked about it earlier. I, but you took what mine was going to be, Pat. Mine was going to be the bad, the Biden gaff, the Biden gaff. All right, well, there you go. You, you already but, got yours. You talked no, about it plenty. I had another one. I, Thought of another one. Well, let's take. I just have to try to remember it. Can I we got, have I, I, like I can thirty help. seconds for me to think about Absolutely. this? Yes. Do 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 do. That's do, do, so helping. Do 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 do. Oh do, 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 do. that from? Do, do, I recognize do, that. Do 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 
Do game show or something? <laughs> it's from every elevator ride. Uh, it's the girl from Ipanema. Ah, yes. Okay, so um, so my precious moment since Pat stole mine um, is is one actually kind of it's a headline from uh, I think a week ago or so, but. Um, as some states are reopening and in, and specifically restaurants in certain states are reopening, um, there have been a few cases of in, in the state of Georgia of restaurants sort of populating booths that are blocked off to maintain social distance with sex dolls, blow up sex dolls. <laughs> I see um, teddy bears. I had heard like, mannequins. I have not heard sex well, dolls before. That's yeah. pretty good. Um, I know actually in Korea, the baseball league opened up and they were putting like, uh, cardboard cutouts of people in the stands and stuff, which was kind of cool. But I just, I, I don't know. There's something really uncomfortable to me about like taking the idea of taking like my family to say like a friendlies and there's a booth of a woman sitting there with the mouth open. Uh, like, oh my God. Awkward, right? Yeah. Not really what I would be going for. And it was like a family restaurant, <laughs> no, the, too. It's not like no, no, no. The dolls wear masks. <laughs> the, right. Um, I, I don't believe that they were wearing masks, oh, no. but that might be worth a fact check. I don't know. Um, but they're, but, but they're all very surprised. They, they they're all very have surprised. That surprise face. Um, <laughs> like those chicken nuggets were not quite what they were expecting. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that's dirty somehow, but I'm not really sure of the details. <laughs> right. um, Me neither, so, but I heard the dirtiness. Anyway, I just had that that idea in my head that that stuck with me over a couple weeks, obviously. <laughs> um, so I'm bringing it up now. <laughs> so enjoy that visual, folks. Excellent. David, my precious moment is a story of how I became a bicycle. Okay. Yeah, did you know? Did you guys know that I'm a bicycle? Your confusing thesis has me intrigued. Please go on. I didn't know that you were a bicycle. (laughs) I had not heard this, no. I am, apparently. Yes, it was a surprise to me, too. Um, But actually, I am a bicycle. So, um, Andy, you know, uh, I'm not sure if Pat and Nathan know, and the listeners almost certainly don't know. I am a teacher of children. Um... They range between first and fifth grade. Um, I tend to be a better teacher, I believe, with the older students. Fifth grade is my jam. Oh, man, fifth graders. Oh, give me fifth graders all day long. But I struggle with the first graders. It's not my bread and butter. Um, I'm just, I'm a little bit better when they've, when their brain has developed a little bit more and... Can be a little bit impatient and a little bit snarky. So my classes, my classes are actually three hours long. Um, I I only have two classes a day. I teach six hours a day. I teach two three-hour classes a day. Um, and on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I have the same first grader class from two p.m. to five p.m. Um, these nine first graders. And usually the, like, first 20 to 30 minutes of class is me uh, giving them some kind of assignment to work on and checking their homework. Um, and and this is the same thing I do with the older classes, too. Just, that's just the first 20 to 30 minutes of class. Put your homework on the desk, do the thing I gave you to do, 
be quiet for like just a little while because I got to check your homework and this is the only time to do it. Please. Thank you. Well, first graders aren't so good at that whole like do the <laughs> thing and be quiet bit. Right. Um, that's not a thing that first graders really do. And so I'm sitting there, I'm checking homework, and one of the kids, and his name is, his English name is Dragon. They, most of them have normal English names, like Sophia and Olivia and Kevin. Um, some of, some of them actually just keep their Korean names. They're perfectly allowed to do that if they prefer it. So I have Taeyeon and Junsup and Mingu. Um, but there's this kid, he decided he wanted to be called Dragon. Understandable. I love this kid already. He's not the first. Yeah. He's not the first. In the ten years that I've been teaching in Korea, I think I've had at least five different dragons. <laughs> um, and Dragon is always a crazy <laughs> dude. No, no matter where I've taught, no matter what age I've taught, the kid that calls himself Dragon... Is always just a little bit off the wall. <laughs> it's nice that he gives you a, that they all give you a little bit of a forewarning, yeah. a heads up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there checking off their homework, and Dragon decides to just randomly point out the window at at the building across the street, the random building across the street, and he's like, "Do you live there?" <laughs> And I'm busy checking homework, so I'm just like, yes. And he's like, really? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, really? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and he's like, really? And I'm like, yes! And he's like, really? And I'm like, no! <laughs> and he thinks this is the funniest game that has ever been invented in the history of games. So he starts doing it with everything. He's now like, are you Mars? Yep. Really? No. <laughs> really? Yeah. Now, in Dragon's defense, really? you do seem no. to be playing into the game pretty hard. <laughs> well, it's, it's really easy for me to continue checking homework while just altering my answer as yes or no. Like, that's not difficult. I can continue doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing while just saying yes, no, yes, no, Fair yes, enough. no. So this goes on for a while, and eventually he lands on, and I'm getting tired of it at this point, and he lands on, are you a bicycle? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> and he's like, really and i'm like yes and he's like really and i'm like yes dragon yes i am a bicycle i'm a bicycle go away i'm grading your homework i'm a bicycle and he's like really and i'm like yes ah yes i'm a bicycle now go sit down so now i'm a bicycle that's, 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 that's my i definitely mind. want to hang out with dragon yeah. We should see right. if we can get him on as a guest. He's a pretty cool kid. Yeah, can we... <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen, but he's 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 relatively awesome. <laughs> I love relatively. It's great. Um, like the funny, like the stuff that parents do, just kind of because they're trying to do something else, but they need to keep the kid entertained. That for the kid turn out to be like this, yeah, like formative 
activity, <laughs> like essential part of his. <laughs> like it, we, we're gonna, you're gonna run into like thirty year old oh, yeah. dragon, and he's gonna immediately be like, "Are you a bicycle? Really? No, he, really? No, he's gonna be like, like how, how, how have you been doing? Are you doing good? Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. really? And you're just gonna break into well, tears on the third, really." It's gonna also like well, the- <laughs> ruin three or four of his relationships in his like late teens. So, so did that stick uh, after that? Gonna- <laughs> Are you still a bicycle? Like, yeah. They they've been calling me bicycle teacher for a full. <laughs> That's oh, excellent. Oh that is excellent. That's great. That's funny. Dragon. Yes, I love dragon. Yeah. Oh, uh, can right. I ask how do you say? I really need a catchphrase in Korean. I don't. <laughs> That's weird. That sounds like an English phrase. Yeah, that's, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's definitely an idiom, and that is absolutely C two level Korean. And you're asking ah. me things I don't know. <laughs> well, we really super appreciate you coming on, David, yeah. and, and sharing your perspective. This was a really eye opening episode for me. I had so much fun. Please invite me absolutely. again someday. Love to have you? Hey, oh yeah. Because the thing that this podcast is missing is the voice of more white men. So let's, <laughs> let's do it. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I've been thinking since the first day. Yeah. Pile them on, man. Actually, awesome. I think um, you're the first male guest we've had, I think, on the main pod. I'm actually I'm actually bi-gender, and I'm mm. not okay. being ironic. Fair so. enough. Awesome. Well, then we still haven't had a male on the podcast. As a guest, <laughs> I never. So I never booyah even diversity. I never even asked what. What do you use for pronouns? Yeah, no, everybody asked that. And by the way, I really appreciate the question. Um, so, but no, it. Um, I he he is fine, especially in Korean. There are not gendered pronouns. Good. That is, is just that has means, to be so handy for yeah. for by gendered people there. Yeah, he he and she is both good. And and that's actually one of the most common English mistakes that kids make is like calling a boy she and calling a girl he <laughs> because it's the same word for both in Korean. So especially living in Korea, like the question of pronouns isn't something that I think about much in my daily life. But every time I mention that like I'm by gender and somebody asks me my pronouns, it's it's much appreciated that you had that consideration. Absolutely. And that's cool for asking. But no, he is Thank fine. you. I am pretty great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yes you are. <laughs> awesome. Well, oh, I still well, do need to come up with a catchphrase. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully we gave you guys something to think about this week. Hey, love you. Bye. Hey, wait, that was my catchphrase. <laughs> you stole that. <laughs> what? what? Controversy over I the controversy so. over mind. the catchphrase. No, it's it's been sort of when evolving. I told you about my podcast. That was my podcast catchphrase. Oh man, no. Anyway, it's been evolving from anyway. Andy's, Bye guys. Andy's a yeah. Andy's a maybe I stole Steve. it from you. That's fine. We, we never ever ever actually end on the catchphrases anymore. It gives us a a flintel like the last or month to, or so. It's like play the music out on. Yeah. Are we gonna do a countdown and like say goodbye after that? Uh, we can or, we can turn off the recording or? anytime because we. Yeah. I think he's just gonna clip it. At, yeah, this is like we're we're pretty much done. I probably won't use unless somebody says something embarrassing that I can use as the like flintel after the episode is over.
Oh, 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 I've got one. <laughs> oh, I've no. got one. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, so when I did that special, like, half episode with, with yeah. Andy, um, I needed to pee, but I didn't know how to say, like, give me a bathroom break. So I just peed in a jar. And, um, <laughs> and then, and then after the episode was over, no, this is, this is Wait, the embarrassing Which part. episode? After the episode was over, I went outside for a smoke because I hadn't switched to pipe yet. And I was also pretty drunk and I came inside and I was thirsty. Oh! And I saw this, this jar of what looked like water sitting on the counter and I drank it. And I thought, well, that tastes a little weird. I wonder why that water tastes so weird. And then I woke up, and then I remembered peeing in the jar during the podcast, and strangely, that's when I threw up. Like, in the morning, like, 12 hours after drinking pee, when I realized I drank pee, that's when I threw up. Not after drinking it, no. No, because I didn't... Wow. Right. You could just... (laughs) You could just walk away. (laughs) <laughs> or, <laughs> or at least just label your jars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks for letting me have that bathroom break earlier. That's that's appreciated. Oh my god. <laughs> so I love that we started this episode talking about drinking Kool-Aid and we're finishing it talking about drinking pee. <laughs>